Good morning, everybody. As I think Pastor Jesse mentioned, you know, we have been going through the book of Luke, and we're up to the section of Luke, like the next few passages that we should study in Luke are the passages that you would normally study the weeks around Easter, okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to expand that study a little by pulling in some of the sections of the Easter story that John covers that Luke doesn't. They don't cover the exact same material. And so, so that we can study the Easter season a little more in depth, we're going to spend some time in the book of John as well. And so today we'll be in John chapter 13, if you prefer to turn in your Bibles. If not, all of the verses will be up on the screen for you, okay? Um, as I was thinking about this passage, there are times probably in everybody's lives where you can remember when somebody went way, way out of their way to serve you, like to be kind. I, I can remember one time um, way back, uh, and to, to understand this story, you have to understand that I am very dangerous with tools. Okay, if I told you the full part of this story, I was trying to use a hammer to pull out a nail and I ended up hitting myself in the head, making my head bleed. Okay, so I am not very good with tools and my wife and I were living in a house and we found out, uh, the, the person who sold us the house never told us this, but we found out that every five years we had to have the whole outside of the house painted and we had to pay for that. It was part of the agreement. And to get it painted, we had to fix any wood on the whole house that was not in good shape. And so we found out about this the night before it was due, the night before we had to have it fixed. And so I am sitting up on the roof with my wife, and we are looking at this huge piece of wood that somehow needs cut out of the side of our house and replaced. And I can remember looking at it helplessly, and I can remember begging God for some help. And one of my neighbors who didn't know us, who was a construction worker, looked up on the roof, looked at how helpless we looked, climbed up the ladder, and spent about four hours fixing the side of our house. And when he was done, he said, I have no idea why I did that. And I was thinking, well, you did that hopefully because I prayed because I was desperate. Um, I can remember another time where I my uh, van brakes went out on a trip. They were, they were bad. They were not going to be able to get me back from Michigan to Pennsylvania. And the person that I was staying with knew a lot about cars. And so they spent like four or five hours just taking our brakes apart, replacing everything, fixing it. And the only thing we had to pay for was the parts. And I thought, wow, that was really, really kind service. One time when my kids were very, very young, we were on a trip to speak in some churches in the south, and we got a flat tire. Well, the problem was our van was loaded, the whole back of the van was loaded from like top to bottom. And you know where all the spare stuff is when you need to change a tire. It's underneath absolutely everything that you need. So. I had to spend about 15 minutes trying to pull everything out and, and place it alongside of the road. And I think we were in Georgia, and it was hot, and nobody was stopping to help. Everybody just kept going past. So I finally got smart, and I pulled out. My kids were really tiny. 
uh, and, you know, Julia was a little tiny and Andy was tiny. And I pulled out three little lawn chairs and set them right alongside of the room and put all the kids in the lawn chairs. Every car that went past stopped after that to help, right? But we, we love and remember with thankfulness when others sacrifice for us. But, you know, there's times where we resist sacrificing for others. Like, sometimes we know that we ought to respond in love to somebody. We ought to do some act of service for, him, for them. But it's not always easy to do. And the passage we are going to look at today makes it clear that part of the Christian life, part of what is supposed to characterize Christians and Christianity and the Christian life, is that we are supposed to live lives of service to others. And that will be part of the passage today. So Jesus is charting a wonderful course for us in this passage today. It, we're going to look at his self-sacrifice for us. We're going to secondly, because that self-sacrifice is what moves us from spiritual death to spiritual life. If he had not died for us, we would have no hope. Then secondly, we're going to look at his way of sacrifice as an example or a model for us. And then thirdly and finally, we're going to understand that the only way we can be transformed into those who serve is if we are united to Jesus continually, if his Holy Spirit is working in us, all right? So we're going to look at how he has served to save, his model, and the power that he gives for us. Now, to understand this passage today, there is a lot in this passage that is symbolic. And what I mean by symbolic is there are times in the Bible where we are given pictures to remind us of something else, like... Jesus is at times referred to as the Lamb of God because in the Old Testament, lambs were sacrificed. And what is Jesus going to do? He's going to sacrifice himself on the what? On the cross. Um, sometimes in the Bible, Jesus is referred to as a lion. Now, that doesn't mean that he has fur and is fuzzy and, and, and growls like a lion, but the lion represents the king of the jungle. The lion represents the king over the universe. And usually when the Bible was describing Jesus as a lion, it's reminding us that he has the right to rule and that someday he will rule. So there are things in this passage that are symbolic. We need to understand what they represent. But there are also things in this passage that are very, very practical where Jesus is just speaking plain old truth that we need to hear. And it's, it's a passage about being clean. It's a passage about being cleaned up by Jesus, both the type of cleansing that moves us from spiritual death to life and the type of cleansing that we need from day to day. Before we jump into John, I wanted to put up one of my favorite passages on the screen from Ephesians, which reminds us that in God's eyes, there is an order to grace, faith, and good works. Many religions teach that the way to receive God's grace, the way to receive favor from God, is to do good things. The problem with that is you and I never do good things 100% of the time. Our good things are mixed with bad things. So if, if we try to clean up our own lives and become acceptable to God in our own efforts, we will still fall short. 
But notice what this passage says. It says, how are we saved instead? How are we made right with God? We are saved by grace. That means we don't deserve it. That means we can't earn it. That means we can't make it happen on our own through faith. It's when we place our faith in Jesus as the sacrificed one, and we trust in that as the only thing that can save us, that we are made right with God. For by grace you are saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. But then it says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good what? Good works. Those who have received the grace of Jesus through faith, those who have been moved from spiritual death to spiritual life, the Bible says God has good works prepared for us. He cleanses us inside so that we can be different in how we respond to others and to the world around us. And we need to understand that as we go into the passage today. So um, follow along with me in John chapter 13. And we are starting with verse 1. It says, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. Now, the Passover is a perfect setting for the practical. And the Passover is the perfect setting for the symbolic. If you will remember, the Jewish people back in the book of Exodus, they were slaves in a land called what? Anybody remember where they were slaves? They were slaves in a place called Egypt. And God sent a particular leader to deliver them from slavery. What was his name? Moses. And uh, one of the ways that God delivered them is he sent a series of plagues upon the Egyptians who would not let them go. And in that last plague, God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the angel of death to pass over all of these houses. And the only way to be protected from the angel of death who passes over is to take some blood from a lamb and to put the, the blood on the door frames put it around the door, and when the angel sees that blood, the angel passed over, and those who had faith in God, those who believed that God would protect them through the blood of the lamb, applied the blood, and they were protected, and those who did not, the firstborn in their houses died. And so every year, every year, the Jews would celebrate the Passover, they would have that as a holiday, and they would do certain symbolic rituals to remind themselves of what God had done for them back in Egypt. And what's interesting is in the New Testament, Paul says, Jesus is our Passover. Okay, Jesus is the lamb whose blood, when applied to us, saves us from the angel of death, saves us from damnation in hell. And so practically, Passover was celebrated every year so that the Jewish people would not forget what God had done for them. And so Jesus is celebrating that Passover with the disciples. They're looking back upon how God had delivered from slavery. And Jesus knows that he is about to go to the cross to deliver us from a different kind of slavery, the slavery to sin, the slavery to death. The slavery, because the wages of sin is death, to what we deserve. 
And so he is celebrating with them to look to the past deliverance of God, but he's also looking to the future deliverance of God that is about to happen. So the Passover festival is going on, and it says Jesus knew that his hour had come. What this means is Jesus knows that after the years that he has spent in ministry, it is finally time for him to voluntarily lay his life down on the cross. He says that he lays it down and he can take it up again. He can rise. He also says that if he wanted to, he could have called down armies of angels to rescue him. But he knew that he needed to go to the cross because that was the only hope for you and the only hope for me. And so before this, if you read through the gospel narratives, they, they tried to make at one point Jesus king by force. And he let them know that it wasn't time for that. There was another time, a couple of times, where his disciples wanted to go out and tell everybody who he was and what he was going to do, and he said, not yet. It's not time yet. The hour has not yet come. One time, his own mother wanted him to do a miracle, and he said to her, woman, my my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet arrived. But he knows now that that hour has come, and what does it say? He's going to depart from the world to the Father. Now, you and me, when we think about departing from this world and going to the Father, that's good news, right? When we, uh, when we are absent from the body, if we are believers in Christ Jesus, if we are trusting in his salvation alone, the Bible says immediately we are absent from the body and we're present with the Lord. The Bible says that there will be a day of resurrection where all the believers from all the nations of the world, from throughout all the history of the world, will receive new bodies and will live with Jesus forever on this earth where he will be the king. That's good news. That's that's exciting, though I think most of us don't really look forward to death. We don't look forward to dying. We look forward to where that's going to get us. It's going to get us to the Father. But understand, when Jesus is preparing to depart, to go to the Father, he's not saying, hey, I'm getting on a train and I'm going to go take a vacation. He's not saying this is going to be a whole lot of fun because he knows exactly how he's going to depart. And it's going to be a departure that occurs after very, very much suffering that he does not deserve. Okay, so the hour has come. He's going to die. He's going to depart from this world. He's going to go back to the father. And it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's it's very interesting that at this point in the book of John, uh, the first 12 chapters, the word love has only been mentioned a couple of times. And now Jesus is focusing upon how his death is an act of love for those that he loves. And now for the rest of the book, the word love is going to come up over and over and over again. Because the number one way that Jesus loves those he loves is he died in our place. He sacrificed for us. He loved them till the end. And and think about it. How is he going to love Peter who will betray him? He loves Peter who betrays him by saying, Peter, I have a job for you to do. I still love you. Go feed my sheep. Peter, get back to work. How does he love Judas? Who I'm sorry, Peter, who denied him. How does he love Judas who betrays him? Well, um, we're going to see in this passage that right up until the end, right up until the betrayal, Jesus still gives Judas opportunities to repent. 
gives Judas opportunities to turn back. He still loves to the end, all right? So the Passover's going on. Jesus knows that he's on the way to the cross, and he is going to show his disciples everything that he can about love and about how much he loves them. So in verse 2, if we'll go ahead to the next slide, it says, Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. If you remember way back when we studied Genesis and we studied the Garden of Eden, we found that Satan came into that garden and he was inhabiting one of the animals. Which animal was it? I heard the serpent. A couple of people mumbled tiredly. All right. The serpent. And... God comes into the garden and God puts a curse on that serpent and says, he says to the woman, someday your descendant is going to crush the serpent's head, even though the serpent's going to bruise your descendant's heel. And that was, a, one, that was the first prophecy about Jesus who was going to come and he was going to crush and defeat Satan through his death. The devil is involved in this intimately. He comes into Judas instead of into the snake, although Judas was kind of a snake, right? He betrayed Jesus. He betrayed him with a kiss. He pretended to love him, pretended to be his friend. And so Jesus knows exactly what was going on. Um, it seems like Judas was disillusioned with the fact that Jesus is always talking about dying, Jesus is always talking about going to the cross. Probably what Judas wanted instead was Jesus to be the king right now and beat up on the Romans. The Bible also tells us that Judas was a greedy thief. And what he would do, he was the one in charge of the money. And so they would give him the money to keep, to take care of the poor and to take care of others. And Judas would steal some of it. All right. So he had some problems going on in his heart. He gives himself completely over to Satan and now he's going to betray Jesus. And it says Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. Jesus knew that he was the rightful ruler of this earth, the rightful ruler of the whole universe, that he had come from God. You can, you can quote this verse. How do we know that he came from God? John 3.16 said, God so loved the world that he did what? He sent. He sent his only begotten son into this world. So Jesus... Uh, if, if you think about this from all of Bible theology, we know that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, One essence, one being in three persons, and that that person, God the Son, at the right moment in history, God the Father sent God the Son into this world and gave him a body as a baby, all right? He grew up. He lived a sinless life. He did not deserve death. He died in our place. Okay, that, that basic gospel message. Jesus knew that he had come from God, and he knew that he was on his way back to God because the Bible tells us that after he died, he did not stay in that grave, but he rose from the dead. He spent time with his disciples, teaching them and preparing them for his final departure. And then he ascended up into heaven where the Bible says he sits at the right hand of the Father and he will one day return for his people. And one day he will rule over this entire earth forever and ever. Okay, 
when Jesus came the first time, he was the lamb who was slain. And when he comes the next time, he will be the conquering lion who will rule the earth with justice and with love. So all this is going on as Jesus is sitting at the Passover table and and his disciples were probably just expecting to have the same kind of celebration that they had had every year of their lives where they looked back upon what God had done. But instead, Jesus is trying to get them ready for what he is about to do. In verse 4, he does something very strange. He does something that they're not going to understand. He does something that Peter's not going to like at all. It says that Jesus got up from supper and he took off his, he laid aside his outer clothing and he took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. Now, back in those days, if you lived in Roman society, if you lived in Greek society, if you lived in Jewish society, never would the one who is greater wash the feet of the one who is lesser. Okay? Washing feet was a nasty job for the lowest of servants. Uh, many times, you wouldn't, if you were a Jew, you wouldn't even let a Jewish servant do it. You would let a Gentile servant do it because it was nasty. Uh, you have to remember, this was a day where the streets were dusty and dirty and muddy. They did not have modern-day sewage removal and sanitation removal, and so there was nasty stuff in the streets. Animals went to the bathroom in the streets, and you walked along in your sandals, and so by the time that you got where you were going, your feet were sweaty and smelly and dirty. All right, so it was a nasty job to clean somebody's feet. So what is Jesus doing? He is modeling, even though he is the greater one, he is modeling love. He is modeling service. He's going to show love to his disciples while cleaning their feet. This is why Jesus came. This is how Jesus lived from the very beginning. If you look at Philippians 2, which I'm going to put just verses 7 and 8 up here, in another place Paul says Jesus emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Have you ever really thought about this? God, the son, the eternal creator of all the universe, living forever and ever with the father and with the spirit in a perfect environment and a perfect relationship with no sin and no disagreements and no problems, Jesus decided to give all of that up to take on a body to come here and live with us and to die for us. All right? See, that is Paul's point, that that's how Jesus started. And now we see him as he's about to end his life on this earth. He is doing exactly what he did his entire life here on this planet sacrifice, service, heading to the cross for us. Um, The first man and the first woman who were created in the Garden of Eden, they should have always lived for the glory of God and to serve others. They failed. 
The nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they should have lived to the glory of God and for the sake of others. But the Old Testament tells us again and again that they failed. The disciples who walked around with Jesus while he was here on this earth should have lived for God and lived for the sake of others, and yet they failed. But you and me should have lived all of our lives for the glory of God and the sake of others, and we have failed too. The only one who has done it correctly is Jesus, the God-man who came here, faced all the temptations that we face, and yet was without sin. He did not deserve death, and yet he was the perfect sacrifice. He was able to be the perfect sacrifice because he was without sin. And we need that because you and I have a record of sin that the Bible tells us his death on the cross expunges our record. It clears our record. It's like if you are a juvenile, you're a teenager, and you commit some crimes. When you turn 18, sometimes what they'll do in the American court system is they'll just close off your record. They'll pretend that it had never happened. Um, there are certain kinds of traffic offenses that if you go to traffic court and maybe you've got to do some practice driving and take a class and, and this and that and the other thing, but if you do all that, they'll take the traffic violations off your record and your record is clean. But we have something far more serious than traffic offenses. We have something far more serious than juvenile crimes. We have years and years and years of sin built up on our record, every one of us. And in an instant, Jesus is willing to wipe it away when we place our hope and trust and faith in him for forgiveness. Why can he wipe it away? Because he died for it. But see, even if our old record was wiped clean, you and I, you and I would still have a problem. It's very hard for us to have anything righteous in our life to offer up to God. And so Jesus takes it one step further. The Bible says that not only does he nail our sins to the cross, but God looks at us as if you and I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He looks at us as if we lived like Jesus did from the moment that we place our faith in Jesus. So he wipes out the bad record, and he's willing to give us the good record so that when God looks at you and me, God says, you are okay with me because of what my son did. All right? That's the good news of the gospel. So Jesus is putting this towel on. He's, he's washing some nasty feet. And in verse 6, he comes to Simon Peter. And we all know that Simon Peter usually says things that he shouldn't say. All right, he's always the, the first one to talk. Uh, he seems to be the one who talks the most when you read about the disciples. And often he has to be corrected by the Lord. All right, now I like Peter, all right, because Peter gives, Peter gives us hope when we talk when we shouldn't talk, when we say something that we shouldn't have said and have to be corrected by the Lord. So he comes to Simon Peter who asks him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Peter's like, uh-uh, Lord. I know who you are. I'm nasty, not just my feet. I'm nasty. You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus understands. See, for us to come to him for salvation, we would love it if we could do something to earn God's favor. We would love it if we could just change our actions and our record on our own and say, see, God, 
Here's who I am now. Why don't you accept me? But instead, the gospel is we have to humble ourselves completely and say, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I need 100% of what you've done for me. And Peter's having that same struggle. Uh Uh-uh, Lord. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but afterwards you'll understand. In other words, Peter, shh, be quiet. You don't understand. You're not seeing the symbolism You're not seeing what I'm about to do. And Peter still takes it one step further. The Lord's just warned him, and he says, You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If Jesus doesn't wash us, we have no part with him. If Jesus doesn't wash us, we have no part with the Father. If Jesus doesn't wash us, we do not have the Holy Spirit within. Jesus washes us through the forgiveness of sins that he offers on the cross, fills us with the Holy Spirit, and loves us and makes us his children. But he does all the work. What's our part? The only part we play is humbling ourselves and casting ourselves upon his grace and mercy because it is the only way. Well, here's typical Peter. First, he goes to one side. You're not even going to wash me at all. And now he says, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head too. In other words, Lord, I I need a whole bath if you're going to wash my feet. And Jesus uses a picture. He says, one who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus is speaking in the terms of his day where if you were heading out to something like a Passover feast or a party or a celebration or some kind of special ceremony, what you would do before you left home is you would bathe. You'd take a bath. You'd want to you'd look nice. You'd want to smell nice. You were on your way to something special. So you cleaned up before you went. But even though you took that bath, by the time you walked the dusty, dirty streets to get to where you were going, when you got there, a good host would make sure that you had the opportunity when you got to the party or when you got to the feast to clean your feet. All right, because your feet would get dirty along the way. And what Jesus is doing is he is now speaking very, very symbolically about the cleaning that we need. See, when it comes to that one time salvation cleaning where he credits his righteousness to us and nails our sins to the cross, we need that one time and one time only. We need a bath. He needs to cleanse us. We only can get saved once. He moves us, the Bible says, from death to life when we believe. But when we walk around this world on a day-by-day basis, our feet get dirty again. Even though we've been forgiven, even though he now sees us as his child and righteous, we still sin. We still disobey. We still go our own way. We're still mean to others. And Jesus is saying, you know, when you go your own way, you don't need to get saved again. You just need those feet cleaned. So when we sin, 
You know, when, when you go home today and maybe tonight as your head hits the pillow, you start thinking about your day. And if you're like me, every day I've got some regrets. Something I should have done that I didn't get to. Something that I did that I shouldn't have wasted my time on. Um, some word that I said too sharply to somebody else. Or maybe, maybe I pretended to be all sweet on the outside, but if they could have heard what I was saying on the inside, I would have been really embarrassed, right? You ever have that? Some of the best arguments I've ever had with people were all inside my head. Nobody heard anything. I didn't say a word coming out of my mouth, but the Lord had to rebuke me for my attitude, for my heart. But when I lay my head down on the pillow at night and I know that my feet are dirty, or when I wake up in the morning and I know that my feet were dirty from the day before, I don't go back to Jesus and say, oh, I'm on my way to hell. I need you to save me. What I do instead is I say, oh, Lord, you have already moved me from death to life because of your death on the cross. Will you forgive me on the basis of the cross for what I've done this day? First John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we, we get the faithful part. That's wonderful, Jesus, that you forgive sins. But the Bible says that it is just for our sins to be forgiven. Justice has been done. Now, see, justice, the wages of sin is what? So if God is just, death has to be paid for the sin. How can God be just without killing us? Because Jesus died in our place. And so when we confess, we confess on the basis of the justice that has already been served by Jesus. He has already given us the bath. He just needs to wash our feet on the basis of what he's already done. But Jesus knew that not everybody in that room was going to take the bath. Not everybody in that room was going to allow Jesus to cleanse them. And see, you can come to church all of your life. You can sit right where you're sitting. You can read the Bible every day. You can read the gospel message. And you can never let it get from your head to your heart. Okay? You can refuse the bath that God wants to give. You can refuse the cleansing process that Jesus offers because of the cross. We only need to come to him once to have our record cleansed. And he's willing to do it when we believe and when we place our faith in him. But you know, in, in verse 11, everybody in that room heard the same account. But not all of them would believe. Judas would betray him. Judas would turn the other way. Well, let's go on and finish off this passage with our next slide. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? Now, this is the part I like. He's been very symbolic. He's been using a, a picture. He's been using kind of a drama to get their attention and try to show them the truth. And they were having trouble understanding it, so he's going to get clearer. All right, he's kind to them. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. 
Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now there are groups of Christians, there are churches that practice foot washing at different times of the year around Easter, where where they might gather in a room and they will they will have a little ceremony where they wash each other's feet um, because they're they're coming back to this passage. They're remembering what Jesus did, and there is nothing wrong with that whatsoever. That's uh, that's a a good thing, but I think what Jesus is getting at here is not just going through a foot-washing ceremony. Jesus is talking to his disciples about their way of life. If he has sacrificed for them, if he has cleaned them up, he has done it like Ephesians 2.10 that we looked at at the beginning of the service. He has done it so that they will turn around and do good works for others. The good works don't save them any more than the good works will save you. But if Jesus has saved you and put his Holy Spirit upon you, you can't help but start to head in somewhat of a new direction. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Doesn't mean you're not going to need your feet cleaned up by Jesus a few times along the way. But what it means is you turn from selfishness and self-focus to a focus upon him and others. And I was thinking about it. Um, We had people who shopped for us this morning so that when we came in here, there were cookies and coffee and flowers and this, that, and the other thing. That was an act of service. Somebody did some good deeds by going out and shopping. Um, We had some people who cleaned the building for us this week, did some good work so that when we came in here, we could sit in a comfortable place and, and a nice place and spend some time together. Uh, Some people cooked for us this morning so that we had cookies, things like that. There were um, people who took the time when we came in this morning to serve us coffee, to give us a smile, to talk to us and ask us how our day is. And we we could go on and on and on with the good deeds that people do for us during the week because they're Christians and they love Jesus and they want to love on us. And what Jesus said is, your new way of life, if you're joining my team, Your new way of life, if you're coming to me for salvation, is to be focused upon others, is to wash others' feet. So as we finish this up today, um, you know, Jesus finished this out by turning his attention to Judas for a second. In verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking about all of you. I, I know those I have chosen But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm back in Old Testament times. To show your foot to somebody was an insult. Okay, we've we've got, you know, maybe you have cut off a driver in traffic at some point in your life and you've received an insulting gesture, okay, through your window. Um, In Old Testament times, an insulting gesture was to show somebody your heel, you know, to turn and to, and so Jesus is saying, I've given somebody here my bread, I have served them, and yet they will insult me in this way. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that it, when it does happen, you will not believe that I am he. Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send, or send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. Um, Jesus understands that 
even though we hear messages, even though we read his word, even though we look at his example, uh, we still have choices to make about whether to follow or to not. And so I'm going to leave you with three questions today from the same slide. And the first question is, have you been cleansed? Have you been saved? Have you received the bath? Have you accepted the bath? Or are you like Peter? No way, Lord. <laughs> You're not, not touching me. The second question is, are you getting your feet washed daily and washing feet daily? What do we mean by that? Are we going back to Jesus daily with confession, understanding that we're still sinners who on the basis of the cross need his forgiveness? But then are we turning around and beginning to wash the feet of others by doing those good deeds? And are you washing feet in his power? Because if it's just a New Year's resolution, if it's just a, I'm going to do better, you're not going to do better for very long. The Bible says without him we can do nothing. When we lose that connection of a moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus and we start to operate in our own strength, it's very easy for us to go back to habits of selfishness instead of habits of good works. And the life of the believer who has been washed by Jesus is that we wash others, we serve them. Oh, Lord, would you help us to be a church that reflects so deeply upon your cleansing power, your washing salvation, that we stay closely connected to you, that we continually go back to you on the basis of what you have done to confess and to repent and receive forgiveness for our day-to-day sins and to receive the power of the Holy Spirit to stay doing good works. Your word says not to grow weary in well-doing. And Lord, sometimes we do and we rely upon our own strength. Help us to become a church of good works, individuals of good works, not because we're trying to earn your favor, but because we have your power and we have your example and because you've already done so much for us. In Jesus' name, amen.